Welcome to some very famous people you've never really heard of. Bite-sized biographies of the famous, the infamous, and the quirky in less than an hour. My name is Philip D. Gibbons, and there is more information about me, this podcast, and a bibliography at someveryfamouspeople.com. There are also photographs of many of the individuals and items mentioned in this podcast. At the conclusion of part two of this presentation, there will be additional suggestions concerning further information about today's subject, Charles Dickens. let's continue with our story about Charles Dickens. Dickens already had sent voluminous letters to Forster, filled with both descriptions and opinions regarding his trip, America, and the Americans. The book that emerged was entitled American Notes for Official Circulation. But the book was not a typical personal travelogue. Instead, it was a lengthy discourse on American institutions, habits, and the individuals encountered along the way including the President of the United States. Negative press concerning Dickens had already appeared in America, again focusing on his alleged greed with regard to copyrights. The result of a July 1842 public declaration by Dickens that until some sort of copyright agreement was signed, he would no longer deal with any American publisher. Before American notes had even been published, American journalists were decrying this perspective and characterizing Dickens' entire American journey as nothing more than an exploitative scheme. Although American notes did provide Dickens' typically humorous anecdotal descriptions, it also contained specific criticisms of slavery and American propensity towards violence, distrust, and ruthlessness among citizens in their personal interactions, especially with regards to business and capitalism, and the generally primitive standards of public sanitation, with a special attention to the omnipresent habit of chewing tobacco and spitting. Frequently, those he encountered, especially in the western and southern regions, were depicted as unsophisticated bumpkins. Critics in American literary publications were mostly universally and predictably hostile. Even worse, the book was published and sold in great quantity in the United States by various entities who typically paid nothing to Dickens. Fortunately, sales of books in Britain, despite lukewarm reviews and no serialization, more than repaid Dickens' advance. With Barnaby Rudge having concluded in serial form in November of 1841, Dickens was faced with the prospect of constructing his next novel. Rudge, his first attempt at historical fiction, a la Sir Walter Scott, was not received particularly well, and Dickens decided to return to the familiar plot lines of the young male protagonist making his way alone in the world, in this case the title character Martin Chuzzlewit. Although Dickens himself felt that this was some of his best work to date, the public was indifferent with serial sales of about 20,000 copies a month, less than half of Pickwick and Nickleby. Perhaps this prompted the completely unanticipated announcement after issue five that Martin would journey to America, Dickens perhaps thinking that this would instill some excitement around the story. 
Well, this plot gambit also allowed Dickens to use material from his recent trip and to continue to deride aspects of American society he disliked. It did not increase sales, which remained mediocre. This prompted his publishers to invoke a contractual clause, deducting 50 pounds a month from his monthly salary to apply it towards his advance. Dickens was predictably enraged and privately asked Forster to find him another publisher. In late 1843, Dickens, with his own worrisome money problems, his continual perceived greed of literary businessmen who he felt were financially exploiting his talents and profound concern for the appalling conditions of the English poor, especially children, this emotional outlook produced a practically cathartic literary effort and possibly his most famous work, A Christmas Carol. Ironically, Dickens also was motivated financially. With the recent dip in sales of Chuzzlewit, the writer felt that overexposure might be one of the causes of this decline. He decided that a year on the European continent and a sabbatical might, upon his eventual return, rejuvenate sales to appropriate levels. But to do this, Dickens needed money. To obtain as much profit as possible, he resolved to pay all production costs of this new venture himself. A Christmas Carol was to be much shorter than most of his works, a novella, in fact. It was published in a single volume, not serialized, bound in red cloth with gilt-edged pages. Its retail cost of five shillings made it too expensive for the lower-class audience Dickens wished to typically access, but on December 19, 1843, A Christmas Carol was released. By Christmas Eve, all 6,000 copies of the first printing were sold out. The book was a critical and popular success and has remained in print since its very first edition, as well as a cultural phenomenon. A Christmas Carol also amplified or created cultural traditions surrounding the celebration of Christmas itself. Christmas as a festive celebration was expanding in Victorian England, but Dickens greatly enhanced this feeling with his depiction of the holiday focused on family gatherings, personal generosity, and specific types of foods and beverages. Ebenezer Scrooge himself became the personification of greed and pessimism. Bah humbug, a counterpoint in A Christmas Carol to the frequently repeated phrase, Merry Christmas. With such widespread success and a very positive theme, Dickens entered the new year of 1844 with an upbeat outlook. Several matters quickly transformed this good humor. Dickens' works were routinely transformed into unauthorized dramatic presentations, knockoffs that provided him with no payment of any kind. These he tolerated and even occasionally attended as he had no legal recourse to stop such productions. But when a printed version of a mostly plagiarized A Christmas Carol appeared in a cheap literary journal, Dickens finally resorted to a lawsuit, which he won. Unfortunately, the defendants immediately declared bankruptcy, leaving Dickens with only a substantial legal bill for his efforts. Because his arrangement with Chapman and Hall allowed them to deduct expenses for all costs associated with the production of A Christmas Carol, Dickens also got a shock when in early February he received the publisher's accounting statement, which, as a result of the extravagant quality of the book and relatively low price in comparison to its production expense, 
left the author with far less than he anticipated. It also left him with an even greater determination to find a new publisher. Additionally, his wife gave birth to the couple's fifth child in early January, a formerly joyous occasion, but now also perceived as the addition of another economic dependent. Dickens still had to finish Martin Chuzzlewit, which he did in the first half of 1844. He also put together the specifics of his trip to Italy, deciding on at least three months in a villa in Genoa. He financed this trip by changing publishers, coming to an agreement with the firm Bradbury and Evans, the actual physical printer of his previous works. Other than a verbal commitment that he write a follow-up Christmas story in late 1844, Dickens was not obligated to produce anything specific, and his agreement merely called for the new publishers to own 25% of the copyright of any future books. On the 1st of July, he and his entourage of family and servants headed to Genoa via France. They eventually settled in a spectacular residence, the Palazzo Pescieri, and here Dickens behaved uncharacteristically like a tourist without his usual practically fanatical devotion to writing. In the next few months, he would only fulfill his obligation for his Christmas book entitled The Chimes and travel extensively throughout Italy. Although some critics were not enthusiastic about his latest holiday installment, feeling that Dickens' preoccupation with the downtrodden bordered on the radical, while others welcomed such a social perspective, the upshot was controversy and ultimately positive sales numbers. Eventually, Dickens was much happier with his eventual share of the profits, believing his switch from his former publishers completely justified. In the next five years, Dickens' literary output would be tempered by his involvement with staging, directing, and even appearing in theatrical presentations. He formed a repertory company that consisted of other friends and artists. The programs presented were typically for charities, Dickens considered worthy causes, and he received high-profile critical praise for his own performances. By the summer of 1846, he was ready to resume work on a novel and relocated to Switzerland with his family now consisting of six children. The plot of this book, Dombey and Son, was unusual for Dickens and that he was much more organized in devising the plot before starting on the manuscript and that the main character is an unsympathetic businessman. It ran in serial form from October of 1846 until April of 1848. Dickens also produced a non-fiction account of his time in Italy entitled Pictures from Italy, as well as the requisite Christmas novella. Although Dombey is not as well known today, it sold reasonably well and reassured the author that his popularity was not diminishing. It was also about this time that Dickens began having conversations with John Forster about the possibility of Forster writing Dickens' posthumous biography. These discussions also prompted Dickens' account of his childhood, much of which was painful, including his stint as a child laborer. For the moment, Forster kept these details to himself, but this aspect of Dickens' life was clearly on the author's mind when he began to think about his next significant fictional effort. He also took great pains to develop a name for the novel's protagonist. When Forster heard the name David Copperfield, he wondered if the initials D.C., Charles Dickens' initials reversed, were significant. 
As the story unfolded in its usual serial form, it was clear that it was. His insensitive stepfather sends David as a young boy to work pasting labels on bottles for a wine merchant. David's friend and landlord, Wilkins Micawber, has a strange flowery speech pattern which is similar to Dickens' own father's mannerisms. Micawber spends unwisely, ducks creditors, and also winds up in debtor's prison, although not in the Marshall Sea. As a young adult, Copperfield learns shorthand, becomes a journalist reporting on parliamentary activities, and eventually achieves prosperity as a writer of fiction. At the time, other than individuals like Forster and members of the Dickens family, there was no public knowledge of the book as autobiography, the details of especially the author's early life and family financial difficulty unknown. The process of composing the work and the character itself was something that Dickens considered deeply meaningful. His introduction of a thinly disguised version of his parents, especially cathartic. While sales were modest in comparison to some of the author's more popular works, Dickens was quite happy with the result. In a preface to a later edition, he wrote, Like many fond parents, I have in my heart of hearts a favorite child, and his name is David Copperfield. While writing David Copperfield, Dickens also began editing a weekly magazine entitled Household Words, an outlet for his various social commentaries, as well as fiction. He frequently collaborated with other writers, especially on seasonal Christmas short fiction. Dickens owned half of the publication. John Forster and another close Dickens associate, William Henry Wills, had ownership shares as well. In the next nine years, he would write or co-write over 150 articles for the magazine. And when circulation dipped in 1854, he serialized his novel Hard Times in the journal, a successful strategy. Hard Times, and uncharacteristically for Dickens' short effort, was preceded by Bleak House, a satire featuring an interminable civil court case mocking the British legal and court system, as well as various other social ills of Victorian England. From 1851 until the end of 1855, these would be Dickens' only major works. Besides editing household words, Dickens was now dealing with a household containing 10 children, his wife regularly continuing to give birth until her last child in 1852. Dickens' father's health also became critical in 1851, after an untended urinary condition led to his death at age 65 on March 31, 1851. Charles Dickens' strategy of isolating his parents in the English countryside was not particularly successful, his father continuing to solicit funds from Dickens' associates via the post office. His parents eventually returned to London before John Dickens' death. Only several weeks after this event, Dickens' youngest daughter, Dora, less than a year old, also passed away suddenly. Frail from birth, the child lapsed into convulsions and quickly expired while Dickens was delivering a speech at an annual fundraising dinner. His wife was also not present. She was undergoing what was known as the water cure in a spa in Malvern for the treatment of what has been described as a nervous disorder. Dickens immediately informed her of their daughter's death by letter 
And although Dickens visited his wife frequently, this separation was a precursor to marital difficulties later in the decade. When his lease at Devonshire Terrace expired in late 1851, Dickens carefully selected and fully refurbished his next residence, an 18-room mansion in Bloomsbury known as Tavistock House. Here the writer produced an 1853 Bleak House, Hard Times in 1854, Little Dorrit in 1857, and in 1859, A Tale of Two Cities. Part of the home's refurbishment included a small theater with a capacity of 90 people. Here throughout the 1850s, Dickens staged various performances with amateur casts drawn from friends, other artists, himself, and even his own family. Although many of the participants were not professional actors, Dickens took these productions very seriously and frequently used them to generate funds for charitable causes, typically benefits for the families of fellow writers who passed away unexpectedly. To increase the proceeds for the family of a friend, Douglas Gerald, Dickens decided to present his production of a play entitled The Frozen Deep to a much larger Manchester, England, August 1857 audience of 2,000 people. He also made the decision to discard some members of his amateur cast and replace them with professional actors. In all, five female actors were replaced. The most experienced replacements were Frances Turnan in her late 40s and her two daughters, 20-year-old Maria and 18-year-old Ellen. Dickens also appeared in the play and participated in rehearsals, the entire cast traveling together by train and staying in the same hotel. Although nothing specific between either of the Turnin daughters and Dickens is believed to have occurred, the author then booked hotel space for Don Caster's race week of September 13th through the 20th, coincidentally the location of the younger Turnin's next theatrical appearance. Not only was Dickens unaccompanied by his wife, he and his friend, the playwright and author of The Frozen Deep, Wilkie Collins, spent the week before race week hiking in the Lakes District. Dickens already had written Forster earlier in September. Poor Catherine and I are not made for each other, and there's no help for it. It is not only that she makes me uneasy and unhappy, but that I make her so too, and much more so. Truthfully, problems in Dickens' marriage had been brewing for years. He confided to Wilkie Collins that he had visited prostitutes while in Paris in the early 50s, and his time in Italy was marked by marital tension. In 1855, Dickens was contacted by his first girlfriend, Maria Bednall, who had broken his heart when he was 18. Clearly, Dickens retained sentimental longing for this woman, the model for Dora Spenlow and David Copperfield, and after several letters, they agreed to meet despite both of their marriages and Maria's admonition in one of her letters that she was presently toothless, fat, old, and ugly. A dinner between the couples was arranged at Tavistock House, and clearly Dickens was appalled by time's transformation of the current Maria Bednall winter. Instead of the love interest and wife Dora in Copperfield, Maria, after this first interaction in 22 years, was subsequently immortalized as Flora Fincher in Little Dorrit. Flora, always tall, had grown to be very broad, too, and short of breath, but that was not much. Flora, 
whom he had left a lily, had become a peony, but that was not much. Flora, who had seemed enchanting in all she said and thought, was diffuse and silly. That was much. Flora, who had been spoiled and artless long ago, was determined to be spoiled and artless now. That was a fatal blow. In real life, Maria Bednall Winner attempted to keep in touch with Dickens, at least by letter. After a few perfunctory replies, Dickens ceased responding. Dickens and his wife were quite happy earlier in their marriage when they both were middle-class individuals striving to build a family and life for themselves. They spent a great deal of time together, traveling, entertaining, and raising their children. But while Dickens became a world-famous literary figure and cultural phenomenon, it was not realistic to expect Catherine to be able to match her husband's remarkable celebrity and boundless energy. After ten children, her health was affected, and her youthful looks and figure were gone forever. In fact, her weight and food consumption became an obsession of her husband, even before Dickens' 1857 machinations involving young actresses, Rumors of a relationship with his wife's younger sister, Georgina Hogarth, were prevalent. Georgina moved into the Dickens household in 1842 at the age of 15, essentially filling the role of the deceased Mary Hogarth. By the mid-50s, she would have been in her mid-20s and was essentially managing the household and supervising the education of and interacting closely with the Dickens children. Although any such relationship which would have been considered incestuous in Victorian times, was vociferously and publicly denied by both Dickens and the Hogarth family, it became eventually clearer that Charles Dickens, at the very least, was less than forthright about his romantic entanglements. Within weeks of meeting the youthful Turnins, Dickens began sleeping in a separate bedroom at Tavistock House and had his maid install a barrier in the doorway between the couple's bedrooms. The legend has it that Catherine Hogarth Dickens, in May of 1858, upon opening a package from her husband containing a gold bracelet and candid letter intended for Ellen Turnin, but mistakenly delivered to the Dickens home, became so distraught that she demanded a separation. Most likely, Dickens, finding his current domestic situation intolerable, initially began negotiations for a separation having relocated to his summer residence known as Gads Hill Place, first offering his wife 400 pounds a year support and a carriage. This was bumped up to 600 pounds annually, with the promise of eventual provision for a residence. But Dickens insisted that his sister-in-law and mother-in-law sign documents officially withdrawing any claim that Dickens was involved in any sexual relationship with Georgina Hogarth. George Hogarth, Dickens' father-in-law, also provided a letter stating that he and his wife had never even implied that such a relationship took place. Eventually, Catherine Hogarth Dickens signed a separation agreement and moved out of Tavistock Place, Dickens soon selling the residence and relocating full-time to Gads Hill. Under the law, Dickens retained custody of eight of his nine children, only his eldest son, Charles, who was over 21, could legally live with his mother, which he chose to do. The other eight stayed with their father. His wife would have to sue him under very strict Victorian legal codes to gain custody of any minor children from the male head of the household. 
After Charles Dickens' death, some of the children revealed that they were compelled to stay with him and forbidden to even visit their mother. Dickens also began to circulate the idea among his friends and associates in writing that his wife was actually a bad mother. Remarkably, Georgina Hogarth remained in the Dickens household, continuing to manage day-to-day affairs, siding with her brother-in-law in this dispute, outraging her family, and only adding fuel to the rumors already sweeping London's literati. Although Dickens did his best to minimize what during Victorian times could have mushroomed into a reputation-destroying scandal, there was additional fallout. Ever sensitive to his public image as the kindly creator of wonderful literary characters, benefactor to charity and social justice warrior, and intent on beginning to appear for profit reading his own works, Dickens felt compelled to issue what today would be labeled as a press release. Initially appearing in the Times and Dickens' own journal, Household Words, it read, Some domestic trouble of mine of long standing, on which I will make no further remark than that it claims to be respected, as being of a sacredly private nature, has lately been brought to an arrangement, which involves no anger or ill will of any kind, and the whole origin, progress, and surrounding circumstances of which have been throughout within the knowledge of my children. It is amicably composed, and its details have now to be forgotten by those concerned in it, by some means arising out of wickedness, or out of folly, or out of inconceivable wild chance, or out of all three, this trouble has begun the occasion of misrepresentations, mostly grossly false, most monstrous and most cruel, involving not only me, but innocent persons dear to my heart." I most solemnly declare then, and this I do both in my own name and in my wife's name, that all the lately whispered rumors touching the trouble at which I have glanced are abominably false, and whoever repeats one of them after this denial will lie as willfully and as foully as it is possible for any false witness to lie before heaven and earth." In other words, despite the fact that I kicked my wife of 22 years and mother of my 10 children to the curb and now won't even let her see them, and I'm hanging out with 18-year-old actresses and have a strange deal going on with my nanny sister-in-law who has lived in my house since she was 15, nothing to see here, please move along. Of course, this did nothing but increase public awareness concerning the separation. It also affected some of Dickens' professional relationships, most notably with his publishers. This conflict began when Dickens requested that his statement concerning his marriage be published in Punch magazine. Mark Lemon, editor and Dickens' close friend, refused on the grounds that Punch was a humor magazine and the statement was not appropriate material. Dickens appealed to the publishers, Bradbury and Evans, but they sided with their editor. Already irritated by what he believed to be excessive profits made by the firm at his expense, Dickens also became enraged by the idea that their refusal was really a pretext and that they disapproved of his actions during his separation. As he grew more successful and famous, it was Dickens' increasing propensity to deeply resent and reject any refusal to accede to his demands. He resolved to start his own journal, and despite his former associate's attempt at an injunction, he successfully began to produce All the Year Round, 
the first issue on April 30th, 1859, also contained the latest installment of Dickens' novel of the French Revolution, A Tale of Two Cities. Published simultaneously in the United States, the periodical was very profitable and would be Dickens' editorial home for the rest of his life. Also, for the remainder of his days, Dickens' exact relationship with Ellen Ternan is not well documented. Initially, to get her out of town, it is believed that Ellen and her mother spent time in France, bankrolled by Dickens. Significantly, after 1860, Ellen Ternan never performed again, and it is believed her living expenses were handled by Dickens as well. However, the writer was determined that this relationship be completely obscured from the public, and during his own lifetime, and for many years afterwards, he achieved that aim. Professionally, he resorted to a completely new and different revenue stream, the public reading of his own works for profit. Previously, for charity, Dickens performed many public readings of his works, especially of A Christmas Carol, but his associate Forster advised him against this as a profitable venture, believing that the public would look down on such an event as greed-driven and a tawdry spectacle beneath that of an esteemed man of letters. Because his charitable readings were so well-received, and none of his inner circle shared Forster's negative perspective, Dickens decided to perform a for-profit reading of his story, A Cricket on the Hearth, on April 29, 1858, at St. Martin's Hall, near Covent Garden in London. Two other readings were scheduled during the first two weeks of May, but the response to Dickens' performance was so enthusiastic that 14 additional shows were added during the next three months, all sold out to enraptured audiences. This encouraged Dickens to take the tour throughout England with stops in Ireland before a year-ending return to Christmastime readings at St. Martin's Hall. Dickens' only props consisted of a specially designed desk, a single book, gloves, and a pitcher of water. A rig of gas jets provided illumination. Dickens always dressed in formal wear and brightly visible to anyone in the hall, a large wooden screen directly behind him, so that his voice also projected effectively. He did not actually read from whatever book he had. Usually he recited from memory focusing on dramatic scenes the public already knew and loved, changing voices for each character. The result was electrifying. As A Tale of Two Cities was not as long as a typical Dickens novel and was serialized weekly, it concluded in November of 1859. Critically, the reception was mixed, but the public was enthusiastic, reading it in its weekly installments or in monthly serial format. Following its publication as a book, historically, A Tale of Two Cities is by far Dickens' all-time best-selling work, with an estimated 200 million copies sold. Only The Little Prince by Antoine de Saint-Exupéry has sold a similar number of copies. By contrast, Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone has sold approximately 120 million copies, although it was only released in 1997. Despite the success of his latest novel, his new journal, and a relentless series of public readings, Dickens began work on his next novel, Great Expectations. When A Tale of Two Cities ended, sales of All the Year Round also diminished, prompting Dickens to begin publishing Great Expectations in serialized form in his journal which prompted the desired effect. Its memorable characters included the typical youthful protagonist, Pip, 
the convict Abel Magwitch, the bizarre and haunting Miss Havisham, and the beautiful but unobtainable love interest Estella. Although in its original intended ending, Pip and Estella remain apart, Dickens was convinced prior to publication to change the outcome to a happier ending where Pip and Estella will be together. Upon completion of serialization, the completed version of the book was published by Chapman and Hall, Dickens having severed all ties with Bradbury and Evans. With this publication and other editions appearing in Europe and the United States, Great Expectations was one of Dickens' most popular works published during his lifetime. While some of his other novels have faded over time, Great Expectations has retained its critical stature, probably assisted by several spectacular film adaptations, most notably by David Lean. Although still consumed by a grueling publication and public appearance schedule, in the 1860s, Dickens would himself admit that his composition skills were diminishing. Time-consuming issues involving problems within his family never really abated with the death of his father. This only left Charles Dickens with the complete responsibility for the care of his mother, who by 1860 was helplessly senile. In addition, his brother Alfred, a railway engineer, died at the age of 38, leaving a widow and five children. Charles Dickens then brought the family to London and took care of them financially, the only catch that Alfred's widow had to take care of Dickens' mother until her death in 1863. This was one of many family dramas taking place within the Dickens family, the author's own matrimonial problems notwithstanding. His brother Frederick had never really amounted to much and didn't help himself by marrying a 15-year-old in 1845. The marriage broke up in 1858, and Fred was ordered by the courts to pay alimony, which he refused to do, most likely because he didn't have it. He fled the country, and upon his return was tossed into debtor's prison. Having already exhausted any of his brother Charles's goodwill by sponging off of him and Dickens' associates for years, Frederick was cut off by his famous relative. He left London and moved to Darlington, England, and began living with a retired friend. Broke and alcoholic, he died at the age of 48. Although he paid for the funeral, Charles Dickens sent his oldest son to the affair, having completely written his brother off years earlier. Charles Dickens' youngest brother, Augustus, was the source of another scandal when in 1855 his wife went blind and he abandoned her and moved to the Chicago, Illinois area, where he then sent for another woman who was already pregnant with his child. An alcoholic, Charles Dickens refused to have anything to do with Augustus either, even after his brother's death at age 38. It was not until his common-law wife died two years later of a morphine overdose that Dickens sent his orphaned relatives a few hundred dollars. Even Dickens' own children were now becoming old enough to induce family trauma. In 1858, Charles Dickens Jr. had already contradicted the rest of his siblings by moving in with his mother upon his parents' separation. In 1861, Dickens Jr. announced that he would marry Elizabeth Evans, the daughter of Frederick Evans, one of the two proprietors of the publishing firm Bradbury and Evans, who Charles Dickens had fired over the whole punch failure to publish his separation explanation. The marriage angered Charles Dickens for several reasons, the main one being that he erroneously believed that his wife Catherine spitefully engineered the union and that his son was not really all that enthusiastic about the marriage. 
Dickens himself did not attend the wedding and discouraged others from doing so. He remained estranged from his son for several years, but had a change of heart, possibly recognizing that his eldest son was most likely the most astute of his children when it came to business matters. In 1868, he hired him as an editor at All Year Round when his son's various entrepreneurial ventures collapsed. Charles Dickens completed one more full-length novel in his lifetime, entitled Our Mutual Friend, which was serialized from 1864 through 1865. Although received reasonably well, today the book is not as well regarded as some of Dickens' most famous efforts. It may be chiefly remembered for almost never existing at all as a result of an incident which occurred during the manuscript's composition. On the 9th of June, 1865, Charles Dickens was traveling on a train that originated in Paris and was headed for London via the coastal town of Folkestone. Due to a scheduling mishap, train maintenance men had temporarily removed some of the track over a railroad bridge that traversed a riverbed. When the train went over the bridge, it broke apart in two places. Luckily, Dickens was in the first-class railroad car right behind the engine, which only partially fell into the riverbed. Most of the train fell completely off of the tracks, killing 10 and seriously injuring 40 others. While conductors and passengers scrambled to climb out of windows or get help for the injured, Dickens was more concerned with getting his two traveling companions as far away as quickly as possible. Traveling with him in his first-class cabin were Ellen Ternan and her mother Frances, having accompanied the writer on a Parisian vacation. Although contemporary accounts depict Dickens as tending to the injured with a bottle of brandy and his hat filled with water, his first inclination was to get Ellen and her mother immediately on one of the first aid trains that began to arrive from London to provide transportation back to Waterloo Station. This he did without drawing attention to either them or himself. In the confusion, he forgot a notebook containing his partially completed manuscript of episode 16 of Our Mutual Friend, which he eventually retrieved from his crumpled railroad car. While he continued his personal appearances and began work on another novel, The Mystery of Edwin Drood, the final high point of Charles Dickens' life was an 1867 visit to the United States. Despite Dickens' contentious initial 1842 interaction with both critics and the American press, by 1867 he had become the world's first great celebrity superstar. Any question that he might not be as big a draw in America as he was in Britain was quickly answered in the city of Boston, where ticket buyers began queuing up the night before ticket sales at his American publisher's offices. And when tickets for 20 performances at a hall holding 2,000 people went on sale at 8 a.m. The line was half a mile long. George Dolby was one of Dickens' assistants during these presentations and later wrote of his experiences during this tour of America, as it was already December when the author made his first public appearance in Boston that he would recreate a Christmas carol was a given. Dolby described the scene after the conclusion of Dickens' first performance of this crowd favorite. In all my experiences with him, I never knew him to read the description of the Cratchit Christmas dinner with so much evident enjoyment to himself and with so much relish to his audience. When at last the reading of the carol was finished and the final words had been delivered, so, as Tiny Tim observed, God bless us everyone, 
A dead silence seemed to prevail, a sort of public sigh, as it were, only to be broken by cheers and calls, the most enthusiastic and uproarious, causing Mr. Dickens to break through his rule and again presenting himself before his audience to bow his acknowledgments. Dickens spent the first six weeks of his tour in Boston and New York. From there he spent two weeks in Philadelphia and Brooklyn, but his health became so poor from a cold and a chronic foot condition that forced him to walk with a cane that stops in the Midwest and Canada were canceled. By now, nasty stories were appearing in the Chicago papers about his brother Augustus's orphan relatives, another good reason to avoid that part of the country. Instead, Dickens pressed on to Baltimore, Philadelphia again, and Washington, D.C., where his performance was attended by President Andrew Johnson, and Dickens was subsequently again received at the White House. The ultimate trooper, he was so ill that he was subsisting on a diet consisting of eggs beaten in sherry, pints of champagne, and soup. After final presentations in both Boston and New York, Dickens' four-and-a-half-month tour concluded with a farewell banquet given by the New York Press at Delmonico's, chaired by Horace Greeley. Dickens' remarks were gracious, humble, observant of all the positive changes the writer had experienced since his last trip and practically an apology for his earlier snide perspective. These remarks were appended to any future editions of Martin Chuzzlewit and American Notes and appeared in All the Year Round upon Dickens' return to England. Dickens' gamble that America would be a lucrative market for his performances proved to be true beyond anyone's expectation, the tour clearing 20,000 pounds in profit, the equivalent of $2.8 million today, and an estimated 25% of Dickens' estate upon his death. But he paid a high price health-wise, his foot so swollen that he eventually could not get his boot on and performed in bandages covered with a colored stocking to obscure his condition. On April 22nd, his entourage left New York for Liverpool. Although his general health and foot improved by the time he reached his destination, the experience was extremely taxing and probably inflicted permanent physical damage. Dickens quickly left Liverpool by train, but he did not arrive at his residence at Gads Hill Place for at least a week. It is believed that he spent this time in a London hotel and a rendezvous reunion with Ellen Ternan after a four-and-a-half-month absence. Dickens had grown to love both the money and the adulation that were produced by his reading tours, and despite the effects upon his health, he predictably began planning what he called a farewell tour across England that began in London, October 6, 1868, and proceeded triumphantly across the great cities of Britain and Scotland for several months. Predating popular musicians of the modern era, after billing these dates as final performances, Dickens eventually reneged and returned to various locations on numerous occasions. This behavior continued until April of 1869 when, after three appearances in Liverpool, Dickens was so severely stricken that even he realized that continuing performances was ill-advised, the left side of his body having temporarily lost sensation, most likely due to a stroke. He spent the rest of the year on a lighter, for him, schedule, but did begin his final work, The Mystery of Edwin Drood, a departure from Dickens' typical fare in that it involves the mysterious disappearance and possible murder of the title character. The first five chapters appeared in April of 1870. 
Dickens also returned to public readings in London in January of 1870. The medical logic that this did not require any train rides and therefore was not as physically taxing. Still, the editorial demands, serial deadlines, and performance schedule were still onerous. How extreme this burden was became evident on June 8, 1870, while having dinner alone with Georgina Hogarth at his residence at Gads Hill Place, Dickens suffered a massive cerebral hemorrhage. Although the finest specialists were summoned, there was little anyone could do, and the inimitable, as Dickens half-jokingly referred to himself, never regained consciousness and passed away the following day, June 9, 1870, aged 58. In his will, Dickens specifically specified that he be buried in a typical humble English churchyard. Part of that desire ultimately became the belief that Dickens wanted Ellen Ternan at his funeral and knew a massive public spectacle would impact her participation. Initially, the Dickens family meant to honor their father's wishes, but a groundswell of popular support driven by the press and encouraged by Forster, who felt any future biography would be aided by Dickens' permanent immortality, Dickens' lawyer and agent approached the dean of Westminster Abbey. Understanding the prestige of such an occasion, the Abbey authorities agreed to this request. However, only 14 individuals attended the extraordinary proceeding in a strictly private early morning funeral in a virtually empty cathedral. Thirteen of the attendees were publicly identified. The 14th is historically believed to be Ellen Ternan. Dickens is interred in the esteemed Poets' Corner of Westminster Abbey, among Kipling, Tennyson, Laurence Olivier, and many other British immortals of the arts and letters. Because she was still officially married to Charles Dickens, Catherine Hogarth Dickens did get the initial satisfaction of receiving an official signed condolence card from Queen Victoria. Some of her children were also subsequently able to visit her. She lived in obscurity for 19 years, saddled with the version of events surrounding her separation manipulated by her ex-husband. Upon her death, she bequeathed her letters from Dickens to her daughter Kate, requesting that they be given to the British Museum so that the world may know that Charles loved me once. She was buried in London next to the grave of her infant daughter, Dora. The details of Dickens' will were published in June of 1870. Not surprisingly, he left 8,000 pounds to Georgina Hogarth, many personal items of great value, including jewelry, private papers, and effusive praise as nothing more than a loyal and trusted member of his family who greatly helped in raising his children. In the document, he then specifically insulted his wife. To Ellen Ternan, he very publicly left 1,000 pounds, but this is believed to be a kind of head fake and that private arrangements for a house and some form of a lifetime annuity were already arranged, 1,000 pounds out of a 90,000-pound estate, a rather modest figure indicating mere acknowledgment. Charles Dickens, Jr. inherited all the year round and edited the periodical until at least 1888. The journal ceased publication in 1895. With the exception of Henry Dickens, who became a successful barrister and prominent member of society, the rest of Dickens' sons were perceived as economically irresponsible and practically consigned to banishment to remote parts of the world with extremely negative consequences. Walter Dickens was signed up with the military when he was 16, and while he received some promotions, he also got into debt after borrowing money. 
a difficulty Dickens refused to resolve. Dickens' fourth child became seriously ill and died in hospital in India of an aneurysm, age 22. He was buried there. His headstone remains in a Calcutta cemetery today. Francis Dickens had a similarly aimless childhood, but eventually found a career after emigrating to Canada, where he saw serious frontier action with the Northwest Mounted Police. However, he died of a heart attack aged 44 while visiting a friend in Moline, Illinois, where he is interred. Alfred Dickens failed his Army entrance exam as a teenager, and while working menial jobs, he made the mistake of running up bills for fine clothing and high living, using his father's name. For this, he was emphatically encouraged to emigrate to Australia when he was 19. He worked in the Australian railway system, married twice, and had two daughters. Eventually, he began to give compelling lectures about his father's life and work and became an official in the Dickens Fellowship, an organization that promotes the life and work of Charles Dickens. While in New York in 1912, participating in the Dickens Centennial and scheduled to give a lecture, he suddenly took ill and died after extreme indigestion. He was buried in the Trinity Churchyard in Lower Manhattan. Sidney Dickens, the family's fifth son, had a fascination with the Navy from a very young age, joining the military as a naval cadet at the age of 14. While he received promotions, reaching the rank of lieutenant in 1872, at the time of his death, Charles Dickens was greatly disappointed with his son's profligacy and the expectation of his father's financial aid. At one point, Sidney was actually banned from the Dickens household, and many of his siblings shunned him, knowing that he was going to demand money. In April of 1872, while on his way to England from India aboard the HMS Topaz, he became ill and died. He was buried at sea. If Dickens may have been justified in his exasperation with some of his sons, his treatment of his youngest son Edward was downright cruel. Charles Dickens sensed that from an early age, Edward wasn't much of a student. Having not even reached his 16th birthday, his father essentially informed Edward that he should join his brother in Australia, the writer's belief even expressed in his work that this was a wonderful land of opportunity. Accompanied by his older brother Harry, Edward was literally sobbing on the carriage ride to the ship that in 1868 would take him down under. Initially, he found success in both ranching and politics, where he became a member of the Australian Parliament. But hard times forced him to give up the ranch, and he eventually was voted out of political office and took a series of menial civil service jobs, like district inspector of rabbit runs. Eventually, even this type of employment disappeared, and the predictable debt, gambling, and alcoholism took its toll. Bankrupt, abandoned by his wife, he died in 1902 in Moree, Australia, aged 50, and was buried in an unmarked grave. The Dickens' daughters didn't have it as rough as their brothers. Mary Dickens never married and lived with Georgina Hogarth, helping to edit a volume of Dickens' letters. Catherine Kate Dickens was much more independent. She married twice, became an accomplished artist and portrait painter, and lived to the age of 89. It was Kate Dickens who first discussed her father's relationship with Ellen Ternan. And what became of the purported mistress of Charles Dickens? She relocated to Oxford, England, almost immediately after Dickens' death, where she met a student and eventual clergyman named George Robinson. 
She knocked 12 years off of her age, and the couple married in 1876. Robinson was 25 and believed his wife to be younger. In fact, she was 37. Initially, they ran a successful school in Margate, but eventually they were forced to sell the institution. Robinson seems to have suffered some sort of mental breakdown, and the couple went through economic hardship, their son's military career forcing them to liquidate assets, including the home that Dickens gave to Ellen. The couple was financially strapped for the rest of their lives, resorting to moving closer to Ellen's sister, Frances, in South Sea. After her husband's 1907 death and her own bout with breast cancer, Ellen was so broke she moved in with Francis. They both died of the disease within a year of each other, Ellen on April 25, 1914. At the time of her death, her relationship with Charles Dickens, despite some rumors, was completely unknown to the public. Kate Dickens did confide in several people during her life about her father's relationship with Ellen Ternan. The author Gladys Story was a friend of Kate's who initially wished to write a biography of Charles Dickens. Over time, Kate convinced her to write about her relationship with her father, giving specific details, not only about the affair, but that one of the reasons Ellen Ternan spent a great deal of time in France was that she became pregnant with Dickens' child and gave birth, the child dying in its infancy. Kate's only stipulation was that Gladys wait until all of the Dickens siblings were dead. Story's book, published in 1939, was attacked by critics as unverifiable and sensational until George Bernard Shaw publicly stated that Kate Dickens had told him the same thing 40 years earlier. Confirmation that, in fact, the relationship was sexual came from Ellen Ternan's eventual parish priest, who confided to researchers that Ellen had confessed to eventual revulsion and guilt over her behavior with Dickens. Today, that Ellen Ternan was Charles Dickens' mistress is accepted historical fact. Kate Dickens once wrote to George Bernard Shaw, If you could make the public understand that my father was not a joyous gentleman walking about the world with a plum pudding and a bowl of punch, it would greatly oblige me. In coming forward, Shaw granted this wish reinforcing the reality that Dickens was much more complexly Dickensian than any of his readers could possibly ever imagine. Thank you for listening to part two of this podcast about Charles Dickens. Information for this podcast came from the book's Charles Dickens by Michael Slater, and Dickens by Peter Aykroyd. There are also additional photographs, bibliographical, and musical information at someveryfamouspeople.com. If you have enjoyed this presentation, please like us at our Facebook page, Some Very Famous People, and follow us on Twitter at Philip D. Gibbons. Subscribe to my YouTube page at Noblesse Oblige, and please tell a friend about bite-sized biographies.